This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, the academic arm of the Mount Sinai Health System in New York City, and one of America's leading research medical schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? And what will this mean for patients? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine, prepared by Icon Mount Sinai, in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at www.science.org and search for the Frontiers of Medical Research-Artificial Intelligence, the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Introducing The Giant's Ladder, written by leading science marketing expert Elizabeth Schaub. Crafted for professionals at the intersection of science and commerce, The Giant's Ladder guides you through a structured approach to marketing scientific discoveries, enabling them to resonate in places that matter most, from laboratories to boardrooms to policy chambers. Get the best-selling book Kirkus describes as a helpfully practical and authoritative introduction to the marketing of scientific products at Amazon and other book retailers today. Welcome to the Science Podcast for February 6, 2015. I'm Suzanne Bard, filling in for Sarah Crespi. In this week's show, we have David Grimm up first with some online news stories, and then we hear from Yuri Bujaki about the neurons that map our environment. Support for the Science Podcast is provided by AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science, advancing science, engineering, and innovation throughout the world for the benefit of all people. AAAS, the Science Society. Now we have David Grimm, editor for our daily news site. He's here to talk about some recent online stories. I'm Suzanne Bard. Our first story looks at the environmental costs of the growing number of electronic gadgets in our lives. We may scoff at our friends for burying their heads in their shiny new iPhones or at the 90-inch TV that takes up an entire wall of their living room. But people aren't necessarily getting rid of their old stuff either. And according to these researchers, that's not good news for the environment, is it, Dave? That's right. It turns out that we're really hanging on. You know, we think every time the new uh, new iPhone comes out or some new gadget comes out that we immediately throw away all of our old electronics. But it turns out, at least according to this study, that we're not doing that. And that's actually not good for the environment because these old electronics actually tend to be a lot less energy efficient. So if we keep on using them in addition to and sometimes instead of the newer electronics, we're actually wasting a lot more energy. But what are we doing with all these old electronics? Well, that's what the study really tried to figure out. The study actually went through a few databases. One was a consumer reports database, just to see what kind of electronics consumers were accumulating in the U.S. between 1992 and 2007. As you might expect, devices like desktop computers and laptops and some really basic mobile phones define 1992. Whereas when you get to 2007, you start to see things like Blu-ray players, plasma screen TVs, tablets, and e-readers. But what the researchers found was that even though these electronics were changing over time, people were still holding on to their old electronics. And they were doing something called downgrading, where, for example, you had maybe this big boxy TV that you used to have in your living room as sort of the centerpiece of your television watching experience. When you got that brand new plasma TV, that flat panel TV, you didn't get rid of that big 
big boxy TV. Maybe you moved it to your kid's bedroom or guest bedroom. So it was still plugged in. It was still turned on from time to time. And it was still being used, essentially, in your house, even though you had this newer gadget. And these old gadgets are just devouring a lot more energy. Yeah, they're just a lot less energy efficient than the gadgets we use today. And these costs aren't insignificant in the bigger picture, are they, Dave? No, it turns out that if you kind of view your home as an ecosystem of gadgets, personal gadgets suck up about 30% of the energy that a car burns in a year. So it's actually, we're talking about a lot of energy being expended on these devices. Well, that's a lot. What can be done about this problem, Dave? Well, one thing researchers say is stop using the old devices if they're less energy efficient. Also, they're arguing for hybrid electronics that take the place of a couple or more devices. For example, using a tablet for word processing and TV viewing, which would potentially get rid of your laptop and your TV in one shot. Our next story also involves electricity, but with a therapeutic purpose. Researchers are trying a new way to get the drugs directly to tumor cells. Tell me about it, Dave. Well, this approach, Suzanne, involves using electric fields. And the idea is because a lot of drugs are what's called polar, which means they have a charge that causes them to move in a specific direction in an electric field, the idea is can we create an electric field around a drug that would force it into a tumor. One of the reasons drugs have such a hard time getting into tumors is a lot of tumors, especially tumors and cancers like pancreatic cancer, have this very high internal pressure, which makes it really hard to get anything from the outside, like a drug, into the inside. And if that doesn't happen, A, you're not going to have a very good chance of fighting the cancer because the drug can't get to it. And then B, that drug is actually going to go other places in the body where it shouldn't go and potentially attack healthy cells, causing a lot of side effects we associate with chemotherapy. And have the results been promising so far? Yeah, the researchers used some animal models here. They looked at tumors in mice and actually in dogs as well. And they were able to design a little device that actually created this electric field outside the tumor. They tried a few experiments with a couple of chemotherapy drugs. And what they found is that, first of all, yes, they had a much better success rate in getting these drugs into the tumor in the first place. And they saw some pretty dramatic results as well. Once they were able to get this drug into the tumors with this electric field, they saw a lot of shrinkage in the tumors that they didn't see with their control experiments. They saw higher survival rates in these animals uh, that had uh, models of both uh, pancreatic and breast cancer. And so the results so far have been promising. All right. So what are the next steps, Dave? Well, this is still in animals, and there's been a lot of success treating cancers in animals that haven't necessarily translated to humans. So if they can continue seeing success in animals, then the next step would be to try something like this in people. Finally, in recent years, biologists have started to take an increased interest in animal personalities. You wouldn't expect them to start with cockroaches, but that didn't stop researchers in Brussels, who glued ID chips to the insects to investigate. How are we defining personality here, Dave? (laughs) Well, you know, when it comes to cockroaches, we're not being very, uh, very descriptive with the personality. We're looking at things like, are the insects shy? Are they bold? Which is still a personality. You know, when people think of insects, they often don't think of them as having different personalities, especially when you think of insects like cockroaches that tend to live in large groups. Maybe you think more of a hive mind. You don't think of individuals sort of expressing themselves. But that's actually what researchers saw in the study. Okay, so how do they figure out if a cockroach was a shy cockroach or a bold cockroach? (laughs) Well, like you mentioned, they 
glued these uh, radio tags to the back of them so they could track them. You can actually see a cockroach with a radio tag on it if you want to on the site. Uh, and they put them in this sort of arena and as means of shelter, is, is creating this, this sort of sense of shelter, they actually shined a red light in part of the shelter. And for some reason, cockroaches view that as a safe place. And what they found is some of the cockroaches ran straight to this safe place when they were put in the arena, but others went around and explored, and the researchers considered them much more bold. Um, so they did see this difference in personality. Not only did they see this difference in personality in one experiment, but as they repeated the experiments, the same cockroaches over and over again tended to be bold, and the same ones tended to be shy, which suggested this was a consistent personality trait. And they also saw this group trait as well, where after a amount of time, even though some cockroaches went straight for this red light and others took their time to get there and, and others sort of explored the arena, at the end of the day, they all ended up under the red light, which suggests that there's a sort of group personality as well, that even though the, there may be, be these individual differences, at some point the group realizes, well, for the safety of the group, we all have to do the same thing, which is seek shelter. So they're sort of going with the flow at that point. That's right. A bit of cockroach peer pressure. Now, are cockroach personalities comparable to other animal species that have been studied, Dave? Well, researchers have looked at a lot of other animals. They looked at everything from octopuses to water striders, and they've seen personality differences in these animals as well. Hard to say how the personalities compare between them, but what the study does show is that even insects like cockroaches as kind of robots that they actually do, even on a very basic level, have some semblance of personality. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm not sure that will dissuade anyone from calling the exterminator, though. <laughs> All right. What else is on the site this week, Dave? Well, Suzanne, we've got an odd story about a woman who experienced a spontaneous cure of a rare immune disease. Also a story about when and how hearing first evolved in land animals. For Science Insider, our policy blog, we've got a wrap-up of our budget coverage from this week. President Obama just announced his spending priorities for 2016, and we analyze what impact those priorities have on various science agencies. Also, a cautionary fishtail from Australia's Great Barrier Reef. So be sure to check out all these stories on the site. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Suzanne. David Grimm is the editor for our daily news site. I'm Suzanne Bard. You can check out the latest news and the policy blog, Science Insider, at news.sciencemag.org. Next, most people associate the hippocampus region of the brain with short and long-term memory. But it also plays an important role in spatial memory and navigation. As an animal moves around its environment, specialized neurons called place cells fire, tracking the position of the animal. The location that causes a particular place cell to fire is called a place field. Yuri Bujaki writes about two different types of place cells and why their skewed distribution within the brain is so important to spatial mapping in this week's edition of Science. These neurons are peculiar in the sense that they seem to decode the XY position of the animal in the environment. So one neuron may fire at a particular position when the animal arrives to that particular position and then it vanishes when it moves forward and another neuron will come up then and so the entire environment is represented by one or a group of neurons that are specific for that particular location. They explicitly define the current location of the animal. So if we have enough information about these neurons we can easily reconstruct the position of the animal. The neuron that defines a part of the environment is called the place cell. 
and the area within which the neuron fires is called the place field. Now, one neuron may have one particular place field, or it may have several. So the general wisdom is that in every situation, in every environment, a new map is pulled out where the distribution of the neurons is unique, and one map has very little or nothing to do with the map of another environment. In other words, neurons that fire in one environment may or may not fire in the other environment. Now, when people observe that some place cells have two or maybe three place cells, then the usual wisdom was that, aha, the experimenters didn't do a good job because they didn't separate individual neurons effectively from each other, and two place cells actually may represent two place neurons. But that's not actually the case. It's absolutely not the case. So actually, what you've observed is there's actually a small minority of place cells with these multiple place fields, and these are very important. In fact, they may actually fire much more often than the majority. Exactly. So the observations in three independent tests show that there are many more neurons which have multiple place fields than expected by chance. This is called a heavy tail or long tail of the distribution. So you've got a small minority of place cells with multiple place fields. But it's a much bigger number than is expected by chance. And you've got a majority of place cells that don't fire as often, but they only have one place field. Exactly. So you're arguing that in the past, a lot of data that may have been treated as noise is actually really important. From one view, you can say, oh, this is just noise. You don't have to worry about because there is a majority rule. But when you see that these numbers are large and when you look at the distribution of this curve, then you start wondering whether there is something important for the brain which is reflected by the distributions. And the answer is yes, it is extremely important, especially if you start analyzing the features of these neurons. So, for example, what features you might say? You can look at the extreme distributions, those neurons that fire only at one particular location and those that may fire at 10 different locations. Are they different in any other way? And the answer is yes. They fire at a higher rate, they burst more, and they seem to be better connected with other neurons which also have multiple place fields. So it seems that within this distribution, these neurons are behaving a little bit differently. Right. So what I asked myself a long time ago is, what does it mean that the distribution of the place fields are such that in every situation there is an independent representation from another situation? That would mean that every single environment would be treated as different. But in fact, your intuition is that it's not quite true. Most of the time, we think there are lots of similarities. Yes, we can tell that you know, room one is very different from room two, but does it require an extraordinary resource to tell that we are in a different room? And how do we know the common features between these rooms? And knowing something that is different is as important as knowing that something is similar. And it seems that the distribution is just perfect for that because it's able to do this. The majority of the neurons says, I'm in a different environment, I'm in a different environment, and so on. But the minority says, I am in the same environment. But the important thing is that the two of them are always together. You can never really say that it's absolutely different or it's exactly the same because it's both 
depending on how you look at the distribution. Now, most of these studies have been done on lab rats, which tend to live in environments which seem to me devoid of many interesting features or landmarks. Is this a limitation of studies that try to get a real sense of the role these minority neurons may actually be playing? Absolutely. Unfortunately, every person who works with behaving animals is aware of the disastrous situation that we are working with animals that are not representing normal functioning white type animals. That has been known for a very long time that animals that are raised up in an enriched environment have many more spines. Their cell genesis is higher. New neurons in the dentate gyrus of the hippocampus are more frequent. But there is no good study at the moment that would be able to compare the distribution of place fields, the firing patterns of the neurons, and many of the physiological features in a wild-type animal compared to a, an animal that was raised in a standard laboratory conditions. Right. We have written a recent review, and we collected a lot of the available data from primates and humans and showed that the firing rates are also normally distributed in humans and monkeys. So it's not a feature of rodents only. Do you have an example in humans? If you compare young people and old people in Toronto or in New York and test them on their ability to navigate in a virtual environment using a computer screen, then the youngest come out as winners. But if you test Inuits from Canada, there is a whole generation of people of my age who have learned exclusively to use their navigation senses without a compass or without map or without any of the contemporary tools. And when you do the comparison about spatial navigation, the older generation is as good or even better in spatial navigation performance than the younger ones, showing that they have an extraordinary reserve because they used their devices continuously and forever as compared to the younger generations that are dependent on GPS completely. Interesting. And so many of my friends can't find their way around the city without complete dependence on their GPS. That's right. There have been wonderful studies from University College London. They compared the hippocampus of London cab drivers with the regular people like us. And they showed that those people who use their hippocampus regularly for thinking about getting from one place to another, they are much better. So it would be interesting to talk to your friends and make two select groups, one which have good enough and excellent ability to navigate and those that don't and see how their hippocampus compare. And I'm sure you will find some differences. (laughs) And the skewed distributions that you've been talking about, do they only apply to spatial navigation in the hippocampus? So this is the story that we have at the moment but it generalizes to many other parts of the brain. In fact, it doesn't matter where you look. Even if you look at firing rates or the axon diameter distribution or the macroscopic connectivity of the brains, all of these different levels show a log-normal distribution. Translation, right now, in your brain, 50% of the spikes are contributed by less than 10% of the neurons. So 50% of the performance of your brain is given to you by a 10% minority. I call it good enough performance. But the other 50% is extremely important too because this two 50% what gives you a perfect performance. The other 50% is contributed by a very large number of neurons that fire at a slow rate. Thank you so much for talking with me. Most welcome. Yuri Bujaki writes about the skewed distribution of place cells in the hippocampus this week in science. 
And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions for the show, write to us at sciencepodcast at AAAS.org or tweet to us at Science Magazine. You can subscribe to the show on iTunes, Stitcher, and many other places on the web, or listen to us on the Science site. The show is a production of Science Magazine. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. I'm Suzanne Bard. On behalf of Science Magazine and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us.